0: We are actually um, starting a new series today out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, a great passage in the Bible um, that, that as a general rule, we tend to look at and apply a lot to parenting, and that's what we're going to do the next three weeks with this series, but there is a lot in this passage, if you're not a parent, or you're not a parent yet, or your kids are out of the house, or whatever your situation may be, that we can apply personally, and a lot of the principles that we're going to look at the next few weeks apply to discipleship in general, so if you're a discipling someone, pouring into someone, whether that be a coworker, a friend, your spouse, a neighbor, uh, there's a lot of principles that are going to apply. So this is broader than parenting, but we are going to illustrate and, and dive into that a lot as we look at this series that we're doing uh, this week. And uh, we're calling this series Raising Arrows, and I'm going to explain that in just a minute. It's based off Psalm 127, and I'm going to read that to you here in just a moment. But I want us to, to kind of keep in mind over these next few weeks as we kind of go through this, and we talk about the family a lot. I want us to keep in mind that, that the family is God's idea, right? He came up with that idea. Uh, the first family was founded by God, right? He created the husband and the wife, and God performed the first wedding, if you will, and then they went and they had children, and and, it was God, and he told them to be fruitful and multiply. So it was, it was God's plan from the beginning that families fill the earth. So family is a, is a good thing. In fact, uh, when God sent his son into the world, he sent him into a family, and he had him raised in a family, and so God loves the family, and at the same time, we understand the balance of no family's perfect, no family's perfect, where all, all of our families are flawed, no marriage is perfect, no family is perfect, no parent is perfect, no kid is perfect. In Genesis, the first couple, right, the first family, Adam and Eve, right, they got, God does the wedding, if you will, launch out into married life. We know sin enters the picture when they choose to sin. Everything is different after that. And then they have their first children. And their first two children, who remembers? Cain and Abel, right? How'd that turn out? First family, didn't go so well, right? Cain kills his brother Abel. I mean, it's a horrible, horrible, tragic story that shows us from the very beginning of Scripture, God pulls no punches. He wants us to know that sin has invaded, afflicted, and damaged the family, including your family, including my family. No family is perfect. In fact, parenting is hard. Parenting is spiritual warfare. And the Bible lets us know that right from the very beginning. Sometimes our children grow up and do things that we can't understand. There are literally zero guarantees that they'll turn out exactly like we hope. They have a mind of their own soul of their own. They have a sin problem of their own that personally, as, as a parent, I understand, I can't do anything about. Only Jesus can do something about the sin problem. But God has a plan for the family and a design for the family. And he wants our kids to flourish, our families to, to flourish. He wants to use us in the lives of our children and, and children in general. God wants to use us in the lives of others Period. That's how God works through his people. God moves in the lives of people, and he works through people to bless other people and to disciple people and to, to to see people come to faith in Christ, to see people grow spiritually. God works through his people, and it's no different in the family and in the church and out there in the world. God wants to work through us. So if you're not a parent right now or you're a parent whose children are going off or whatever the situation may be. A lot of the principles we're going to discuss can be applied to your life today and applied to discipleship relationships and things of that nature that you can be in. The truth is what we're seeing here is what we're going to get into the next three weeks is we're going to kind of be talking about how to disciple kids how to disciple your kids, how to, how to disciple within the family context, how the family is to kind of be like a school. And the truth is, and we kind of understand this more and more in our culture, if we do not disciple our children, someone else will, right? The world is incredible disciple makers. I mean, I mean incredible disciple makers. They're just not making disciples of Jesus, right? That's just not the way it works, and so, it, it, you know, whether it's, um, whether it's out in the workplace, whether it's at school, whether it's in the sports programs or whatever it may be, that, that's not the goal of the world. The goal of the world is a lot of things, but it's not to make disciples of Jesus. So if that's going to happen, if that investment's to be made in their, their lives, that has to happen through the family, and it has to happen through the local church as we partner together. So God wants us to prepare our children to grow up to be adults and to be launched into the world, right? They are like arrows that are being trained up, that are being prepared to be pulled back and to be launched into the world. Let me read to you from Psalm 127. Psalm 127, verses three through five. Listen to what the psalmist says. He says, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Well, we love that part, right? That's good stuff. Heritage from the Lord, fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth, Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. What's he get, what is the psalmist getting at here? Children will not always be children. Arrows are for battles. They're for war. And our children are going to fight real battles and deal with real wars and real serious issue, uh, issues that come up. The, the image in this passage in Psalm 127 here is an image of the city gate. Uh, that's the imagery that's being used here, the, the, the city gate that they, that, that they would have understood in their context um, in, the, in, in, in the Jewish world at that time, the Eastern world at that time. And it, this was a place uh, where enemies would attack in war. They would have come to the city gate, right? They'd try to get through the gate, try to breach the wall. But it was also where the public square was. This is a place where deals were made. It's the place where lawsuits were waged. And the idea is that these children would be the defender of their parents in their parents' old age. The parent has a defense at the gate, someone to watch over them, to protect them, to represent them. This parent will not be put to shame because his children, specifically here, sons, now adults, are prepared and ready for these moments. And they are like arrows in the hand, right? They, they are ready for life. It paints a picture of kids who are now adults who are well prepared for whatever life throws at them. And in this situation, the parents who have prepared for the children, excuse me, have cared for the children, now the children are caring for the parents. And many times we know that's how that goes in life. The roles kind of reverse. And the parenting goal we see here is more than survival. It's more than not messing up our kids too bad. It's a lot more than that. The goal is that they be launched like an arrow into the world prepared and ready arrows need to be sharpened they need to be aimed Um, these arrows are ready to be fired it says they're like arrows in the hand of a warrior they're not put away in storage right so we have a responsibility to educate and to nourish and to nurture and to prepare and to sharpen and to discipline and to disciple children so that they are ready to be adults and the key to all this is the right foundation We have a lot to teach our children about life and life skills, but nothing is more important than what we teach them about God. Absolutely nothing. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the beginning of making wise choices throughout their life starts with a reverence and an awe and an understanding of who God is. That's that's the foundation we build upon. A.W. Tozer said it this way, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Think about that quote when you think about investing in children. In Deuteronomy 6, we see how God instructed Israel to rear their children in a specific way, how they were to lay the right foundation, to strive to pass their kids more than their DNA, more than life skills, but to pass on their faith to their children. Now, Deuteronomy 6 is explaining to us how to raise arrows. We're well-prepared children, ready to stand on the truth of God's word. So look with me at Deuteronomy 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. We're really only going to look at a few verses today, but for context, this is the passage we're going to spend the next couple of weeks in. Look, at me, look with me at verse 1. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you Now look back up there. Before we go any further, I want you to look back up at verse 2. God is getting ready to, to give them the law, right? And he's getting verse 4 is what is known as the Shema. And, and, and Jewish people um, used to they would quote this twice a day to remind them. We're going to get to the Shema in just a moment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Uh, this, I mean, this is important. This is like the pinnacle of understanding why God has given the law and all that. And he says in verse 2 as he prepares to give his people this, he says, What, so that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. So what I want you to understand is that God wants generations and always has wanted generations to love and obey him. You, your son, your grandson, right? The idea is generational. You get to the New Testament. You see the gospel go into a place. And many times if you read the book of Acts, it'll say they believed and their whole household. So they didn't just share the gospel with this individual. They, they shared it with the household, and the Bible records that for us because it wants us to know, I believe, that God is in the business of not just changing lives. He's in the business of changing families. He's in the business of changing generations. God, God wants to change your life, but God can change your family tree. and That's a really big deal, and he's been doing it in the Old and the New Testament. Look with me at verse 4, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now that's our passage for today, but let's read a little further for context. We're going to look at this next part next week. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. I love what Paul David Tripp says in his parenting book about this passage. He says, quote, Your work as a parent is a thing of extreme value because God has designed that you should be a principal, consistent, and faithful tool in his hands for the purpose of creating God consciousness and God submission in your children. God consciousness and God submission in children. He says, you can't create this yourself, only God can, but you have been appointed to be an irreplaceable tool in his powerful hands. An ambassador, he calls it, the other points in the book. And that's what's going on here. The goal and the hope of every parent who is parenting according to God's design is that their children would personally know the one true God and love him. That's the goal. And that's what we're going to talk about today is aiming at the right target, okay? Hitting the bullseye. What, what's the goal? What are we really trying? I mean, is, is, is the goal success in the world's eyes? Is the goal a lot of money and a successful career? Is, is, is the goal uh, that they fall in love and have, you know, a lot of grandkids for you? Like, what, what's the goal? Well, the goal, according to this passage, seems to be, and it's the best passage on parenting and passing your faith on to other people and the generations coming along than any other passage we have in the Old Testament and, and really in the Bible, the goal is that they would know the one true God and love him because that is God's goal for all of us. If you're sitting here today you know what does God want from me? God wants you to know him, and he wants you to love him. He wants you to personally know him and love him as the only true God. And that is no different in Old Testament or New Testament or where you turn in your Bible. That's what God wants for you. And that's what God wants for the people that we work with, that we share our faith with. That's what God wants for our friends and our neighbors. And that's what God wants for our children and our grandchildren. But we can't make it happen. We can't make people know the Lord and love the Lord. We can't do it. As, as Tripp says, we're a tool. We're just a tool in the hands of God. Only God can work in a heart. Only God can change a heart. Only God can do that. But we can teach. We can encourage. We can train. We can discipline. We can love. And here, most importantly, we can model. But only God can work in a heart, whether it's your coworker's heart or whether it's your child's heart. You see, in this text, God wanted his people to personally know him and love him. We see he presents himself here as the only true God. and In the New Testament, Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? You remember that? God walks up to Jesus. He's trying to pull a fast one on him, and he says, so what is the greatest commandment? Because there's a bunch of them. You go read Deuteronomy, and you get into Leviticus, and you get into all those confusing passages that you speed read when you do your Bible in a year, and you're like, so which commandment's the most important? And Jesus says, what? First, he starts with, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall, and he quotes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus quotes it a little, he he gives it a more robust, but then Jesus goes on to say, the second one is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he he goes on to say, and it's recorded in multiple gospels, that on this law, basically the whole Old Testament hinges on this, the law and the prophets. In other words, he's saying you can sum up what God's looking for in your life with this, this idea of a unique, passionate love for God and and also love for people. That's what the law is communicating. And we know we can't produce that in a heart. We know that we can't make children love God. Can't do it. Can't make anybody love God. Only God can work that miracle. We're gonna talk more about that in just, just a second. But the goal, the goal in our parenting, the goal in sharing our faith with people is to see them come to know and love the Lord as the only true God. And the obedience that God calls for in this passage and to the law was to be the fruit of that love relationship. Jesus said it this way, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Well, that started back in the Old Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, let me show you what it looks like right, and he gives the law, because it's to flow from a heart that loves God, so let's walk through this text and see how we can use it to recalibrate our lives, right, individually, that's the first place we need to apply this, is to our lives, and then recalibrate our homes, and if you're a parent, especially if you've got young children at home, or children that are still in your home, our parenting, to recalibrate it to the real goal of knowing and loving the one true God, so when God starts there in verse four, and he says, hear, O Israel, right, When when you see that, Moses say that God's truth in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, this reminds us, is communicated and to be shared and to be learned and to applied in the context of community, right? Hear, O Israel, right? So God's talking to his people. and In the New Testament, we know that expresses itself in the local church. In the Old Testament, it was the nation Israel. And the point is that God is going to tell them to press this truth into their family units, and their family is obviously, to be connected to something bigger than their family. In the Old Testament, that was a nation called Israel. In the New Testament, it's the local church. And so, every family needs a bigger family, a faith family, if you will. Every family needs a local church to walk in and apply the truth of God's Word in. So, that's the the context, the, the way in which we walk in this truth. It's in this context of community. So, why does God want... For us and for our children. God wants you and your children to personally know the one true God. Let's start there. He wants you to personally know the one true God. He says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, notice the pronouns, okay? Don't skip over stuff. The Lord our God. This is called the Shema, the beginning verse here, this this passage here down to where he talks about calling on them to love the Lord, their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. This Shema, like I said, they would would repeat this a couple of times a day. They would memorize this. This was hidden in their heart. And when you see there the Lord, and in my translation, that's in all capital letters, L-O-R-D, and that's telling me that it's not the name Adonai, it's not the name Elohim, but it's the name Yahweh. Anytime Yahweh, the Hebrew name for God, one of the Hebrew names for God, but this was God's covenant name. This is the name God uses when he deals with Moses, right? When he deals with Abraham and he makes his promises and he makes his covenant, he deals with, this is the God who they looked at and they'd go, okay, this is the God of Abraham that made a promise to Abraham that that, that he was gonna make him a nation and that one was gonna come and the nations were gonna be blessed through him. This is the God that keeps his promises. This is the one true God, not just any God. This is our God, the Lord, Yahweh, God's covenant name. So that's how God reveals himself here. The Lord, Yahweh, our God. It's personal. He is one. The phrase there, the Lord is one, speaks to God's exclusivity, right? It can have allusions to the, the, the unity of God. We get that, right? We know that God, there's one God, and he exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But most ideally, what he's speaking to here is the idea that there's only one of him. There's only one true God. He's an exclusive God. There's no one else like him. The Bible is clear about this from beginning to end. And we can't talk about loving God until we first agree on who God is. We can't talk to our neighbors about loving God until we first agree on who God is. We can't talk to our kids about loving God until we first understand who God is. And they needed to know and remember that he's Yahweh, as we, as we do, the, the God of the Old Testament. I would say the God of the Bible, the God of the Old and the New Testament. So if we want our kids or our friends and our neighbors to know God, we got to be very clear about that. Because here's the thing. We can send mixed signals. There's a reason they said this twice a day. There's a reason God before God tells him to love him, he, remind, he basically is forbidding idolatry. He's basically saying, by the way, there's no other God because he knows our hearts and he knows we are prone to treating other things than God like God, giving that role to other things in our lives. Our lives can shout to our neighbors and even to our children that money is God, that power is God. That work is God, that comfort is God, that pleasure is God, that that safety and security is God, that achievement is God, or here's one, or that family is God. All these things. Whatever we communicate with our life and with our words, that it's preeminent, that it is the one, it is above everything, no matter what you do this, even if we don't intend to communicate it, that's what begins to be seen as our God. And see, our children, for instance, need to hear from us who God is and his exclusivity, that he alone is worthy of our worship, but they got to see it too. We do this when we, when, we, when we obey God around people and around our children and our co-workers and our neighbors, even when it's hard, even when it would benefit us to not obey, Right? Uh, We show this, we model this when we show that our lives revolve around God, right? When we orient our lives around him and his truth and what his desire and his purposes are, and not around whatever, work or their school or extracurricular activities or whatever it might, might be, but that our lives are oriented around God. But we communicate with our greatest allegiance in our lives, we communicate what our God is. Our children, for instance, to talk to the parents, or grandparents for that matter. What, what stirs the greatest passion in our lives? Kids pick up on that. Very intuitive about that. What, what gets our supreme loyalty in our lives? Children pick up on that. So do our neighbors. So do our coworkers. One of my favorite shows years ago was called Parenthood. You may ever watch that show? It went off like four or five years ago, I think. But it was a real popular show at the time. And, um, and, and it was one of those shows that was, it was all about the family dynamics, okay, in, in, the, in this family. And it was interesting because it was, the, the, this show was based out, the family lived out in California, and it was a very secular kind of minded show. They didn't really, they weren't church people, they weren't religious people. Anytime they brought up God, it was kind of uncomfortable. It was more in a sense of that's not our thing, right, and church is not our thing. Yeah, but they had this very close family, and it was always weird to me that it was, the show was so secular. Because one of my favorite Bob, my favorite Bob Dylan song was the intro to the show, and the song begins, "May God bless and keep you always." And Then anytime God's talked about on the show, it was always kind of. But you begin if you watch the show, and I watched the whole series. There was a God on the show. There was a God, it just wasn't Yahweh, it wasn't Big G God. It was a little God. It was it, it, the God was the family. Ultimate allegiance came to the family. Uh, the, the world revolved around the family. And that's the way a lot of our, our shows, for instance, even the ones that we look at and say, man, this is a good show. It's about family. It's got some good things in it. Think, and many times, God is the family. And even in our culture, we, we can kind of get in, a, in one ditch or another. One is almost like marriage and family. That's something to put off and to wait. And that's almost like, people are almost like it's bad. And then on the other hand, it's kind of like it's God. And it's neither Right? It's, it's good it's from God it's an institution God created and God loves the family but family can't be an idol so whatever it may be it may be that we communicate that the family is ultimate or that career or success is ultimate what are we communicating to our children or to our neighbors or to our friends that is that is God because if we want people to know that the Lord is God and that He alone is God, then we have to communicate that with more than our words. We have to communicate that with how we orient our lives. But we don't just want them to, to know that. We personally want them to love the one true God. So it's no, but it's also love. Look at verse six You shall love the Lord, Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is what God's after. He wants us, our neighbors, and our children to truly know and love him, to fully be committed to him, to obey him, and to walk with him because we love him, right? It's an exclusive love, isn't it? I mean, it's pretty intense. Love me with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, or all your strength, or as Jesus would say, in all your mind. It's, it's an exclusive love that can only be demanded by an exclusive God. See, this doesn't make any sense without verse 5. The Lord our God being one, the only God, an exclusive God, gives him the right to look at you and say, and you must love me with everything you've got more than anything else right? As Jesus would say, your love for me should be, should, should be so high. It's like the, the, your, the difference between your love for me and your love for anything else is like hatred. Not that you actually hate, but it's like it's black and white different. It's a superlative love. It's an exclusive love that can only be demanded by an exclusive God. Imagine one of your friends saying, do you love me more than all your other friends? Or if you've got more than one kid, one of your kids saying, do you love me more than all your other kids? pretty sure I asked those kind of questions when I was a kid. But it, you'd be like, if a friend asked you that, you'd be like, first of all, that's weird, right? Um, maybe we need to spend less time together, right? You, you don't have the right to ask me if I love you more than all my other friends. Because you've got a lot of friends, right? If you've got multiple kids, you've got more than one kid. You're like, oh, we love you all. But there's only one God, So God can say, you must love me more than anyone or anything else in your life. Because I and I alone, I and I alone, am God. We're to love God with unique love that transcends all other loves, a consuming love. And, And when he says this, love me with all your heart, love me with all your might, love me with all your mind, love me with all your soul. These kind of things, it's not really about different parts of us as much as it is about all of us. The idea is, is, is you can't compartmentalize. It, all that you are, with every area of your life, you are to love God. The point is, you can't you can't put it over in a box, right? I love God on Sunday. Or I love God with my with my mind, you know. I I love I lo- I love to love God with my mind, and so I want to I want to know the scriptures and things like that. But but do you love God with your soul? I mean, is he? Is, you know, do you give him all that too, right? Do you give him your 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 emotions and your will and your choices? And all, it's all of us, right? He said, "Love me with all that you have. You can't compartmentalize. And if we love God in this way, obedience will happen. It's not an excuse to not obey." well, I don't obey God, but I love God. No, 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 no. No, if you love God, you will obey God, right? We, we obey God because we love God. God wants obedience that flows from a heart that loves him. Bottom line. And the model here in Deuteronomy 6 is that the home is to be a school where children learn the importance of who God is and learn the importance of loving him supremely. They learn what God commands, the importance of obeying God, as Paul Tripp said, God's consciousness and God's submission to God. They, they learn these things from it, seeing it taught, seeing it modeled in the home. And right, children learn mainly through observation, right? I mean, let's give you an example. The other day, Brooks, our youngest, who's just turned two, um, this was back a, back a week or so ago, he points over at the kitchen, and we'd never heard him use this word, and he just points at the kitchen and says, Kitchen. We had never worked on that word. I've never walked him into the kitchen and said, "This is the kitchen." We've never, you know, we don't we haven't done that with that particular word. I'm like, "Wow, he just kind of where did that come from?" It came from observation. He had heard us call it the kitchen, right at some point it came out, "Kitchen." I've also got a 6-year-old who's in first grade. He's come home with some words he didn't learn from us, too. Right? <laughs> observation. Right? So and so said this today. Okay. <laughs> Observation, they learn by what they see and by what they hear. That's a, a main way we all learn that way. Observation. They learn how to walk that way, right? It's not just kind of like you stood them up and like, put your foot here. but you know, they, just, they, they watch long enough and they're like, okay, I want to move. That looks cool. And then they just find a way, up, you know, and then at some point they're on their feet and they're walking. And the main way we encourage our kids to seek and to know God and to love God is by modeling it. Is by showing them a passionate walk with God. They need to hear us pray. They need to see us obey. They need to know there is an authority in our life greater than any other. That we don't just expect them to acknowledge our authority, they need to see that we are under authority, a greater authority. They need to see God in his word prioritized in our lives. They need to see us do more than pay lip service to God. They need to see that we're more than just people that go to church. We're people that know and love God and seek to obey his word. But what we want for our kids, and seeing them come to know and love and trust God, even as we model it and strive to model it, we can't produce this in them. Even in, man, you can model it great, man. you can knock it out of the park. You can be the godliest guy in the room. You can be the godliest guy in Orlando. You can be the godliest mom in the United States, but at the end of the day, you cannot make your children personally know and love God. Nor can you do that for your neighbor or your friends. It's personal, right? It's a personal decision. Our God must become their God. Knowing God is your God and loving God supremely is a matter of the heart. Look at what he says in verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And he doesn't tell you that you can put it on theirs. <laughs> he tells you some things you can do that we're going to get into next week, but... At some point, we've got to make a heart decision. And God's desire, even in the Old Testament, has always been been for our heart. Not just ritual. Love me with all your heart, he says. These words shall be on your heart, he says. See, God wants us to obey him. It glorifies God when we obey him. It's best for us when we obey him, but he wants us to want to obey him. See, God doesn't just want your obedience, he wants your desire. He, he wants it to be about more than just duty, like uh, I, feel, I do this because I have to. It's, it's, it's about He wants us to want to, so he wants our, our heart. And knowing God and loving God is really a matter of the heart. And you can't put God's word on your kid's heart. You can't make them love God with their heart. It has to become personal to them. We can model it. We can teach them. We can share God's word with them. See, our kids and our neighbors and our friends have the same problem that you and I have. Same problem, and it's a heart problem, and we spent a lot of time on that in the early part of Romans, if you were here for that, and it's the, it's the idea of our sin problem. See, our heart, that's what God wants, and that's also our problem. <laughs> God wants us to love him from the heart, and the heart is our issue. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 15. Matthew 15, 18 through 20. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. Because it came from the heart. The heart was defiled. Verse 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Somebody says, well, I just have a little gossip problem. You have a little heart problem, right? It flows from the heart. Romans 121, for although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, no one comes into the world longing to obey God, to know God, to love God. We're sinners. Our neighbors are sinners and our sweet little kids are sinners. They don't just become sinners when they're teenagers. It becomes a little more evident then sometimes. But they're, they're born into this world bent and broken and sinful, and we don't have to teach them to sin. But the good news of the Bible is that God changes hearts. God changes hearts. And if it wasn't for that, we'd be without hope. Listen, same book, Deuteronomy 30. You're like, la, 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 Deuteronomy 30. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, your children, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul that you may live. It was all, God always knew, the only way you're going to do this is if, if I'll change your heart. He gets over in the, in, in the prophetic books, like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and he promises to give a new heart, to take out the stony, hard heart that rebels against God, and to give a new heart that is soft towards God and desires to obey God and to be molded by God. And he even says, I'm going to put my spirit within you and cause you to obey See, the thing about parenting is that the thing our kid needs the most, right? We're all about providing for our children and protecting our children. The thing that they need the most, we cannot give them. can't give my kids a new heart, spiritual heart. I, I, can't, I can't raise them spiritually to, to know and love, make them know and love Jesus. God has to do a work in their heart. The prayer I pray most consistently for my kids is that God would save them, every day. It's a prayer I pray most. I pray it in front of my kids. I pray it with my kids, because I want them to know they need to be saved, and I want them to be saved. They need to believe in Jesus. I want that for them. I'm not pulling any punches around. It's not like, I hope you figure it out, right? I've heard people like, you know, it's kind of like, well, I just want them to kind of figure it out. So if they want to go over here, they can go over here. They want to go over there, they can go over there. They want to try this church, they can try that church. They want to try that. I just want them to kind of figure out their own spiritual journey. Hogwash, right? Baloney. I want them to know the one true God and love God. So you're going to go church with me. Right, And you're going to hear about the God of the Bible. And you're going to hear about the fact that you need Jesus while you're in my home. Right, so Because I know the thing they need most, they can't do for themselves. And the world's not going to do for them. And I can't do for them. But all I can do is help create an environment where they're exposed to God's word. That they see God work and move. They hear about God and his truth. And we pray and we pray that the Holy Spirit moves on their heart. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, God's in the business of making all things new. Anyone in Christ is a new creation, a new person, a new heart. And through Christ, we can have the new heart God promises, a heart that loves God and obeys God, not perfectly in this life. Listen, you'll never have a heart in this life that is without sin and that perfectly loves God and perfectly obeys God. You won't have it, your kids won't have it, your neighbor won't have it, your wife won't have it, your husband won't have it, your pastor won't have it. Not gonna happen. That happens in new heaven, new earth, right? Different series. But we can have a heart that loves God and obeys obeys God and progressively and more consistently grows in that and walks in his truth because the Holy Spirit is working in and through our lives to help us know and love and trust and follow God. See, that can only happen through the power of the gospel. That's what our kids need and our neighbors need and what I need and what you need. See, we'll never love God until we first understand his love for us. You will never love God until you begin to understand his love for us. Now, we, we learn about that and grow in that. I, I get That's a deep pool we dive into that we swim around in for the rest of our lives. But love produces love. Let me read to you. 1 John four nineteen. We love because he first loved us. See, the only reason any of us become the kind of people that really love God and really love others from the heart is because we come to understand God's love for us in Jesus. It's when we hear and receive by faith the good news of God's love for us in Christ that we become people that love God and love others. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says in this the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him, through Jesus. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, we'll we'll never love God until we first understand his love for us in Jesus. When we realize God loves us while we're yet sinners and sent Jesus to die in our place on the cross. When we realize the good news of Jesus' death in our place, his burial, his resurrection on our behalf. When we put our faith in Jesus alone to save us from our sins. God transforms us into people that know and love and desire to obey God. And as a Christian, if you want to grow in your love for God, Start with growing in your understanding of His love for you. We have to let that sink into our heart, and the deeper it sinks into our heart, the more our heart wants to obey. If it's trite, Jesus loves me, this I know, is this kind of this trite thing? And not something we meditate on, not something that we see as plastered throughout the scriptures, wooing us towards God? We won't really get it. We have to understand, God wants us to see this. And it's all the way through the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, that all is, we're gonna talk about this in a couple of weeks, that God even roots the law in us understanding his love and saving work. The bottom line today is that God's desire for our kids and for us and for our neighbors is that we know God and love God supremely, but that can only happen by the power of the gospel. Bottom line. It it has to be from the heart, and that can only happen when we believe the gospel. That God has loved us and sent his son to die in our place and be raised from the dead. Gospel changes everything. It's gospel transformation being changed by the power of the gospel that produces a person that loves God. So as we think about this, we have to ask the question, do do I know God and love God? Has the gospel changed my heart? Have I been born again, right? That's where all this begins, right? If I want to raise children to know and love God, then I first need to be a person that knows and loves God. I need to come to know and love and trust in Jesus. And if I'm a believer, am I modeling for my kids and for that matter, my neighbors and my coworkers and the people, other people in my home, my spouse, a relationship with God that knows him and loves him. What do I desire most for my kids, parents? The world has a lot they want to press upon us. And some of these things are important and are good. But if we're not careful... Knowing and loving God can kind of get bumped down the line, right? Next week, we're going to get into the process, the routine of what it looks like to create an environment conducive for spiritual transformation in your home. It's, it's, I mean, it's, just, it's all right there, and it's, it's great. And it's principles from, the, from back, way back then that still work today, that we can apply today. But we've got to start with the foundation. We've got to start with aiming at the right target. Because if we don't have the right target, we're not gonna. We, we're we're sure to mess up, right? It's all by grace anyway. I mean, that's why there's a lot of parents out there at the wrong target that have kids that turn out to be godly. It's because Jesus saves, right? In spite of us and our failures. It, it, it ultimately, we know what needs to happen most in our lives and our children's lives is a miracle that only God can do. We just want to invite and beg and pray and create an environment that invites that miracle. Let's pray.